You are now listening to Strands of Our Nation, Conversations with Dr. K, produced by the Carson Institute, which aims to provide a conversational space to discuss, debate, and explore answers to America's most urgent questions on racial, economic, and social injustice. Welcome to the special collaboration between the Carson Institute and the Baltimore Sun, our Black History Month conversations. We are excited for these conversations and thinking very clearly and very intentionally about the Black History Month theme, which is Black health and wellness. We're talking about the well-being of the Black community in all areas, psychologically, emotionally, socially, and artistry is a big area that we're looking at today. I'm joined first by Kamau Hai. Uh, he is the Baltimore Sun Editor in Education and Diversity, Equity and Inclusion. And we're going to talk a little bit about the Black Marylanders to Watch series. Hi, Kamau. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Dr. K. It's a pleasure to be here. And we're excited to have you because we're both going to be in conversation with Jacqueline, Jackie Copeland, the chair of the Maryland State Arts Council. Jackie, I'm so excited to have you today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. It's good to be here with you, Dr. K, and with Kamu. It's uh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So, Kamal, I have to come to you. I, I will tell you, I was taking a look at the Black Marylanders to Watch series, mm-hmm. and I'm going to say what everyone was thinking probably to themselves. I read the list and didn't see my name. So I was really concerned <laughs> first about that. Uh, but I want to know, why this year for Black Marylanders to Watch? This is new for the Baltimore Sun. It, it is new for the Baltimore Sun. Uh, and I, let, let me also just say that I was also shocked that my name wasn't there. <laughs> I was like, hey, what are we doing here? Come on, help a brother out. <laughs> but no, uh, the so the, the idea behind the 25 Black Marylanders to watch is similar to our 25 women to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we sort of lifted that DNA and transplant, transplanted it, and then also added a little twist because we also added five living legends. Um, and the idea behind the sort of 25 Black Marylanders to watch is who are the people making changes who are the people sort of doing the work? Who are the people uh, who have their shoulder against the wheel uh, and are making change? And we wanted to highlight them and celebrate them. Now, I really love the Women to Watch series. Both Jackie and I have both been included in that series, but mm-hmm. actually taking a look at women across the state of Maryland mm-hmm. who are doing work that you may not be familiar with. On your list, mm-hmm. uh, there were people like the, the Maryland teacher who won a yes. million dollars for her teaching prowess. So can mm-hmm. you talk about some of the people on the list and then we'll get to the living legends? Sure. Like So so there, it's great that you, know, you, know, you mentioned uh, Keisha Thorpe, who is an amazing teacher uh, and someone who we definitely felt needed to be spotlighted. I mean, she won the Global Teacher of the Year. I mean, and she's she's a proud Marylander. Uh, some of the other people include Erica Bridgeford, uh, who was on with you last week, who uh, the, the co-founder of the uh, the Baltimore Ceasefire uh, movement, which has really sort of taken off and really made an impact in our city. Uh, you know, some of the other people on our list, uh, you know, if you're just sort of talking about some of the living legends besides uh, Ms. Copeland here, Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, the noted author uh, and heavyweight intellectual. Uh, other people uh, in that same category, Kurt Schmoke, former mayor of our fair city, as well as current president of the University of Baltimore. Uh, so these are some of the some of the many figures who are on our list, uh, which you should read at BaltimoreSun.com. 
Now, I thought you did something very interesting um, because when I look at the 25 women to watch, they have all the women together. So I was mm-hmm. on the page, for example, with Dr. Letitia DeRaza. Mm-hmm. For this particular series, you actually had like two people from education, two mm-hmm. folks from sports. So you had Lamar Jackson, two yes. from politics, Mayor Brandon Scott, for example. Why did you set the categories up in that way? Well, we wanted to sort of sort of um, look at the breadth of what Baltimore has to offer. Um, You know, we wanted to sort of highlight different categories and make sure we spread the wealth around so that we can include as many interesting people doing interesting things as possible. Now, I will say my mentor, Barbara Jordan, is whispering in my ear, how could I not mention that Sherilyn Eiffel is one of your living legends? I mean, she may be on her way to the Supreme Court. If I have a book. And I I just want to say, I just want to pat myself on the back. Uh, We had her on our list before the Supreme Court talk began. I mean, obviously, Sherilyn Eiffel uh, has done it all and continues to do it all. I mean, her work in the civil rights movement is really uh, unquestioned and should be, is something to be emulated. And then my last question to you before we open up and have this exciting conversation uh, with Jackie Copeland about arts and artistry and what it means to collect and celebrate and amplify Black art. I want to ask you, what are the Baltimore Sun's plans for the rest of Black History Month? Besides this amazing collaboration with the Carson Institute, what else are you up to? Well, we have several things planned. Uh, just And just so people understand, like, so our is currently online and it's full uh glory, as it were, uh, but we will then we sort of cut it up so that it will run in each Sunday's uh, section, sort of giving it the biggest audience possible for our print readership. Uh, we also have other stories planned around Black History Month, uh, one of them which I can tease, but I can't tell you too much about, uh, involves work of, let's just call it the sort of the Black aesthetic of uh, interior design here in our uh-huh. state. Huh, very interesting. And that might be John John's work, I wonder. Maybe. So, maybe. maybe. So I, I don't know. Who can say? <laughs> so I always look forward to the Baltimore Sun and your cutting edge work. Uh, what you. we're doing today for everyone who's joined us, and we thank you so much for joining us here at this collaboration between the Carson Institute and the Baltimore Sun. We went through the 25 Black Marylanders to watch, as well as the five living legends, and we pulled out just a few of them to spotlight every Wednesday. We started last week with Erica Bridgeford talking about Baltimore ceasefire. Next, we have Dr. Martha Jones from Hopkins, and the last Last Wednesday will be with Reverend Hewa Brown talking about can food save the Black community? And today is one of my favorites. I've been a fan of the work of Jackie Copeland for a very long time. I followed her work, uh, particularly when she was at the Reginald F. Lewis Museum of Maryland African American History. And so we have a list of questions and Kamala and I will kind of ping pong back and forth with me taking the first one. Can you first talk about your work as the chair of the Maryland State Arts Council? Uh, sure. Well, first of all, let me say that I am humbled to be one of the, you know, five living legends. There are so many people in Maryland that could be on this list. Um, but yes, I, I am currently the chair of the Maryland State Arts Council. And um, the State Arts Council is actually um, part of the Department of Commerce. It is a state agency. And the purpose of the Maryland State Arts Council, or we call it MSAC, is to provide grants to arts organizations, to artists, to um, county councils, to fund their art uh, activities, performances, exhibitions, um, so that the public can enjoy them. So we are a granting organization. And my role as the chair is to keep everything organized. There are 17 counselors 
that are appointed by the governor or the legislature. But basically, we listen to the staff. And the staff is so good at what they do. And they do the hard work, as well as people in our community who act as panelists and advisors. So it's an easy job when you think about that. Hmm. Well, you know, so my question is, you know, how would you describe the Maryland art scene and sort of specifically the Baltimore City art scene? You know, the Maryland art scene is a well-kept secret, I think. Just like Baltimore and parts of Maryland are well-kept secret in terms of the livability of our area. You know, people from D.C. come and live in Baltimore. We are now being known as a very creative space for artists and um, very livable. There are lots of artists who have made the national scene now who are you know, born in Baltimore or Maryland, and now they're on the national scene. So we have a very creative environment. Sometimes we know who these people are when they blow up, but then there are others who are like, oh, I've never heard of that. So you have to get out there, look at the art, read the magazines and visit art studios. I want to talk about some of the work that you have created. I've been collecting art for a long time. I'm always very interested in, in discovering new artists, new Black artists, as well as trying to, to save my pennies <laughs> the work of some of my favorites, right? So I look at what David Driscoll kind of points out as some of the big people to have. So I have in my living room an Elizabeth Catlett, Anna Charles White, and then a piece by Calvin Coleman, who is a local Baltimore artist. Right. So talk first about Elizabeth Catlin, in case people don't know who she is and the importance of both her paintings and her sculptures. Oh, yeah. Elizabeth Catlett is one of my favorite artists. She's a modern artist um, who died in the early part of the 21st century. Um, when I was uh, the director of the Reginald Lewis Museum, I was also the curator and I curated an exhibition in 2019, which lasted until March of 2020. And the, the great thing about that exhibition was that we borrowed everything from people in Maryland or Baltimore specifically. That's a way to change, that's a way to save money. And I started that back in 2016 with the Jacob Lawrence exhibition. And if you if you look at other uh, museums now, they're doing the same thing. Museums don't have a lot of money to mount exhibitions or to, to pay for the travel of all these artists, you know, uh, artworks to get there. So all of the works came from Maryland collectors, 20 uh, works on paper and I think 14 sculptures. Beautiful. And it attracted a lot of people because folks had never seen so many sculptures, you know, in an exhibition of hers. But, you know, folks put, they wrapped their blankets around it. They put it <laughs> in the car. They put it in the trunk of their car. They drove it to us. I'm like, oh, my God. OK, <laughs> um, but it was spectacular. So, you know, there are those. And David Driscoll, of course, uh, was the preeminent scholar of African-American art. We, we miss him so much died early because of COVID, um, a scholar who you know, really taught us about the giants in our field. But there are, other, there are other artists out there. And if there were a secret to discovering them and to know which one would blow up and make us a lot of money, <laughs> uh, there isn't. I don't know that formula. The trick is to buy what you like. 
The, the trick is to buy, to purchase what brings you joy. Um, and it doesn't, if it's $15,000 or $1,000, but buy what you like. If you buy as an investment, that's quite a different thing. I've never purchased anything as an investment. So, you know, the, the Black Sonium in Washington, D.C. Is, is, not, <laughs> is not far from here. Although, I, uh, and, and you, as someone who used to oversee the Reginald F. F. Lewis Museum, can you talk a little bit about the, the tension between having like such a, a, an icon as the Blacksonium and the Reginald F. Lewis uh, relatively close together? Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I don't think of it really as tension, but others, you know, looking from the outside in may see it as tension. I think we're blessed to have institutions as significant as they are uh, within a 50 mile radius. I will say that when the Blacksonian opened, we got a lot of traffic because people wanted to, well, I wanna see this, I wanna see that. I'm like, oh, well, you need to go to Washington DC because you're at the wrong place. <laughs> and, and most of the time they said, well, now that we're here, we'll see, you know, we'll see what you have. Um, Folks see this beautiful building, which is um, on Route 83 and, and Pratt Street. Sometimes they don't know what's inside. So this has been an opportunity for people to kind of stumble across the Reginald Lewis to see what's inside. And, you know, it has a long title, the Reginald F. Lewis Museum of Maryland, African-American History and Culture. So the first thing is like Reginald Lewis, the basketball player, you know, who, who. Uh, but, you know, it is a, it, it has a wealth of material. So I'll end, end this, I don't want to get too long, but when they sourced objects in the Blacksonian in DC, they went all through Maryland into people's attics and in, you know, their treasured things and got them in the Blacksonian. Now they could have been in the Reginald Lewis Museum, but because Maryland is a treasure trove when you think about our history uh, and slavery and, and uh, whatnot. So, yeah, I don't think of it as tension. I think we're both doing the good work that needs to be done. And actually, they came to the Reginald Lewis Museum, Lonnie Bunch and curators, to see how we organized our exhibitions. And it's not too dissimilar. I want to talk and drill down just for a second into the Reginald F. Lewis Museum of Maryland, African-American history and culture. So when, when they first opened so many years ago, uh, they reached out to me and said, well, we'd like you to be the key family. Can you bring your children? And at that point, I think my youngest, my oldest was maybe six or seven years old. First time my family was in the Baltimore Sun, by the way, Kamau, because we were spotlighted in the Baltimore <laughs> Sun as uh -huh. the family going through. And they were actually following the museum through Kofi's eyes. So he's six and seven years old, oh going to the museum, but he started on the top level with that huge wall exhibit of the water coming across the shore. And growing up, I would take my sons down to the Lewis Museum, give them a sketch pad and say, find any piece in here you like, and then sit down and sketch it. Right. And talk about the importance of exposing our children early, not just to art as a whole, but to black art where they can see themselves potentially on the wall. Right. Um, wow. Yeah. And, and the Reginald Lewis, I didn't know that about your family, but good for the son for doing that. Um, the Reginald Lewis Museum, or let's just say the Lewis Museum, <laughs> opened in 2005. And 
it has about 10,000 objects in it. Only about mm, maybe a thousand are on view. But what you did with your son to bring him there and to have a sketchbook, going to a museum, especially an African-American museum, but going to a museum in general is the largest, the biggest predictor of whether someone will attend a museum as they become an adult. So you're, we're training our kids uh, to be part of our culture. Um, honestly, I don't, I've been in the museum world for a long, long time, um, but I, I want to see more African-Americans in museums, especially our black museums and any museum. We we will support exhibitions. I've seen this. We will support exhibitions that highlight our experience, that highlight African-American art if they're in a white or mainstream museum. So those museums are finding out that, yes, we will support that art. But, you know, we want to see ourselves in the museum. We want to see ourselves on the wall. We want to see ourselves in the paintings and the sculptures. You know, so so COVID has had a devastating impact on not just Maryland, but the, the world as a whole, and including the, the David Driscoll, who we were just talking about. What do you think its long-term impact will be on the art scene? You know, the art scene is still struggling. You know, we, we've all heard in the news how, you know, masks are coming off, and we don't know if the pandemic is getting ready to be over. Probably not. But artists especially are still suffering. MSAC gave out $12 million to artists and arts organizations who were suffering through the pandemic, the first year of the pandemic. This year, we have already given out $100,000 to artists alone in emergency grants. And we've removed the restrictions before it was, what do you need to do to put on an exhibition or to put on a performance or things like that? Now it's, what do you need? Do you need money for rent? Do you need money for heat? Give us, you know, send us an application. We'll give you the money, use it to survive. So we're going to do everything we can to continue to provide emergency grants to all organizations, but especially artists who are um, displaying the, the largest need. I would like to know the answer to when the pandemic is over, but MSAC has a commitment to sustaining our arts organizations during the time of the pandemic. I think about the importance of, of losing ourselves into the art. I know that, that when I have a stressful day, one of the things I like to do is I, I choose different paintings at home and I'll just kind of sit either beside them, underneath of them, look at them. I have a wonderful piece by Calvin Coleman, which is called Coming Through the Storm, which is a, a with three black women walking. They all have on white dresses, but the American flag is woven through their dresses. And I find places to just 
think deeply. So when my son was home this weekend, we went and we spent some time because that's why I like to have these conversations with my sons. Tell me about who you're interested in. What's her name? What are you doing? Are you spending my money? And I'll say, hey, meet me in front of and I'll name the piece of art or I'll text them. So this weekend we were in front of one of Faith Ringo's pieces. So we have her posters um, and we have the poster she did of the American flag. And she has in all the areas names of Black people throughout the years who have been killed from Emmett Till up to Trayvon Martin and talking about his legacy. Can you talk about what that's like? Why is it important to to lose yourself in the art and how art can be a healing place for you? Well, you're exactly right. So am I right in that you were in New York? Were you in New York? Yes. 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 So at the new museum, for those who want to take a trip, the new museum has a fabulous retrospective of Faith Ringo's work. Now you talk about people who have been involved in the arts for a long time. She's been doing it since the very beginning. Her mother was a a seamstress and she's done paintings and sculptures, everything. Art can function in a variety of ways. Uh, We can look at it to understand our history. And what you saw was one of her flag series of works. Yeah, and she has some that are very... um, Emotional, because they have um, the N-word in the flag. Um, But art can also be a place where you can uh, relax and meditate and reflect. So I think it's it's really important for a museum or any kind of an exhibition space to know the power of art. You know, know when you need to sit in front of something and just look. Um, You know, people... Sometimes when they go to, like when you go to Europe, perhaps, like, I want to see the Mona Lisa. So you, you know, you got a checklist. And so that you see the Mona Lisa, you really can't see the Mona Lisa because there are all these people standing in front and it's a size, you know, barely, you know, it's like 10 times the size of a postage stamp, but you really can't have that emotional experience. So rather than treating works of art like you're in a shopping mall and you're just looking, looking, looking. You're right. Stand in front of it. Sit in front of it. And I always say to uh, people I'm working with in exhibitions, why don't you have a bench or a chair in front of that piece so that you encourage people to sit and engage with the work of art? If you're not engaged with it, what's what good is it? Right. That's my philosophy, at least. So what do they say when you ask them that? Well, they say various things like, well, we don't really have enough space. And I'm like, comfort, being comfortable in a, in a museum is one predictor of whether someone's going to come back. You get tired. The floors are marble or travertine and your legs get tired. You want to sit down. So it's not about, it, it is about the art, but it is also about accessibility and providing for your guests, you know, think what Target would do. Well, they don't put places for us to sit, but you're trying to be a welcoming environment for the public that's there to see the art. Um, so I end up saying, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but let's put a chair there, put two chairs, put a bench. It'll be okay. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I'm with you on that one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, because it's Black History Month, uh, we've been, I've been doing a lot more reading and editing of stories that deal with a lot, you know, sort of our, the early history of African-Americans here in, uh, here in our fair country. And I guess my question to you is, you know, what are some of the connections between African-American and African art? Wow. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I, I guess I would, I, I would talk about the Harlem Renaissance a little bit. Uh, and that's top of mind because I teach a course on the Harlem Renaissance at, at Towson University and I have been doing so, I think, for almost 13 years. Interestingly enough, a lot of the people who are in that class, students, the undergraduate, graduate, have not been exposed to the artists or the writings of these authors during that per seminal period of our history. Um, and it was during the Harlem Renaissance that some of the preeminent scholars of that time said, connect with our heritage. I want to see paintings that have some African influences in it. So you see at, you know, when the Harlem Renaissance was active, 1917 to about 1929, you see lots of images that might have Cuba cloth from the Congo or a fetish uh, or sculpture from Gabon or exotic flowers that you might find in Africa. So yes, we as African-American artists use that and the literature does the same thing. Um, uh, Langston Hughes made references to Africa in his poetry as well. But the other thing I wanna say is that yes, African-Americans use it, but African art has been an influence on our global culture. You know, people that study Picasso and Matisse, they were some of the first artists who noticed African art. And, they, and, and that's, what, that's how Cubism started, really, because they saw these uh, fractured abstractions that you see in African art, and they used it in their work. So these white artists, Picasso, Matisse, Wandry were really influenced, as was a contemporary artist whose name is Eve Klein, a white artist. There's something called Eve Klein Blue. It's a color. He copyrighted the color. But when you think about it, it's nothing but indigo blue, right. <laughs> which is what our African, Amer our African people cultivated on the continent, brought here to South Carolina in the 1700s, and indigo, indigo blue is a precious blue color. I'm like, how did, how did Eve Klein get to, you know, copyright that? That's amazing. And it's a powerful color, you know. I don't know. I get lost in these thoughts. Did I answer your question? <laughs> you, you did, but, you know, you, speaking of teaching a, a course in the Harlem Renaissance, what is the one piece of, let's say, literature or art that you would recommend from the Harlem Renaissance that people should check out today? Oh, wow. I mean, besides all of it, obviously. Yeah, besides all of it, of course. So there are so many. Um, first of all, it's, it's, as you know, it's really a literary movement. Um, these are artists. These are writers who were writing poetry and essays and novels. Um, but there was also art and we know it for its art as well. Of course, Langston Hughes is the preeminent writer of the uh, Harlem Renaissance. And I guess, so that's one. And if you remember when there was the ceremony to open the Blacksonian in DC, 
one of the speakers, not sure whether it was President Obama or not, read the poem, I too am America. Yeah. You know, I too am America. I am, you know, I sat at the kitchen table, blah, blah, blah. So it's like, I too participated in this American dream. So besides that, of course, um, the, the, the book that, um, well, it, the book called The New Negro, which really defined what the Harlem Renaissance was, but the writing of W.E.B. Du Bois, mm-hmm. who wrote The Souls of Black Folk mm-hmm. in 1903. And that's when he talked about having a dual consciousness. I'm a, an American and I'm Black. And those things, those two things are at war within myself the dual consciousness. And this is why I love to teach the course because what resonated then in 1903, we are still living in 2022, right? 2022. I want to talk about art uh, in just a different way. I know we spend a lot of time talking about the paintings, but, but in looking at different types of art, particularly this month with Black History Month, the ways that art have been used as paths to freedom. So, so I've been thinking a lot about my Nana um, because we've been talking about cornrows and I went back and I grabbed the pictures and I actually put on my Facebook how when my Nana used to cornrow my hair down in Columbia, South Carolina, she would talk about how they would put maps into the hairstyles of young black girls and women and those were the paths to freedom. But it made me think about that. I thought about Faith Ringgold and quilts, quilts. Uh, Negro spiritual. So can you talk about art? that was used by enslaved people as paths to freedom? Uh, yes. I'm trying to th- gather my thoughts on that because that's a heady topic. Um, you know, it's, it's, yes, it's art, but it's our culture. And we, as a people, devised many different means to survive. So the quilts that you talk about in terms of Faith Ringo, and now there are scholars who debunk this, But um, many people believe, as I do, um, as Joyce Scott does and her mother did, that there were quilts that were sewn with messages in them hung on the line to let runaway slaves uh, know that this was the path to this was a safe house and this was a way to get to the Underground Railroad. Um, I think we are now in a time because again, like the Harlem Renaissance, but um, after George George Floyd, that our culture is being recognized again. There is now a rush to do all things black and everything about us, which is fantastic. The fashion, mm-hmm. you know, the fashion, and we have black fashion designers here. You were talking about interior design, the hairstyles, you know, the legislation that has been in parts of the South and the Midwest that um, didn't allow black hair in its natural element to, it was against the law to have. I, I hope that they are rethinking that because the cornrow is coming right from Africa. Um, I didn't really know about the maps. <laughs> I didn't really know about that. But, you know, just disguising, you know, we, we had various ways to um, uh, have our own freedom. 
So when the master told us on the plantation that we couldn't communicate through the language, we found ways to move our feet. We found ways to use the African (laughs) drum. Uh, We found ways to use other instruments. And that was the beginning of, you know, some of the music that we have now, the genesis of Black music. Josephine Baker, and this isn't so much um, her, you know, path to freedom, but it is a path to freedom because she served in, you know, she went to France. She's one of our best known African exports and she went to Paris. She served in the French resistance and she's decorated. She was decorated and they actually sewed messages in the bottom of her gowns when she would perform on stage So that's a path to freedom, a path to democracy against the Nazis. So, you know, we're very creative people. (laughs) Very creative. Yeah. Many different ways. I love that. I just want to add uh, for people who are watching, one of the other things that would happen with the corn rolls, or as my Nana would say, cane rolls because of the sugar cane fields, they would actually, in doing the corn rolls, they would put rice and seeds in here as well. So that as you're traveling to freedom, if you get hungry, you have the rice, you have seeds to kind of help you along the way. So it's fascinating the ways in which we have used art, not just, you know, to find ourselves, but also to help us figure out where we have to go next. Right. And there are so many, you know, I think our history is continually being discovered and uncovered. Um, There is something on National Geographic TV, I think right now, A Thousand Years of Slavery, it's a series. And if you go to the Harriet Tubman Center in Easton, you can see the various ways that um, Harriet Tubman, you know, helped to lead so many folks out of slavery. That's a wonderful visitor center that they have there. But more than the visitor center, you can experience the land itself and see what it's like to walk in those marshes and to walk amongst those tall grasses. So, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned about the cornrows. Yeah. You know, so you, you mentioned um, that you should, you, should really, you should buy art that you like, not as an investment. Um, so who are some artists that you're liking these days that, that maybe we should check out? Not to invest, but just to uh, go. Well, you know, first of all, I will tell you that um, in terms of living legends, I, wrote, mm-hmm. I wore this necklace because this is a living legend. This is Joyce Scott. Mm-hmm. Joyce Scott is an artist in our community who you talk about doing the work for a long time. Joyce has been at this. She was a performing artist. She's um, she's done paintings, she's quilts, uh, sculptures. Amazing. And, you know, Joyce Scott is a um, MacArthur genius grant winner. So Joyce Scott, of course, of course, is someone that you you can collect. Um, Gerald Gibbs, who is, I think, part of your 25 people yes, to, yes, leaders to white. Yes. So maybe Gerald Gibbs wasn't on anyone's radar, but I went to a studio visit with him about two or three weeks ago. And he said, this is my first studio because I've been making art in my garage. And now what do we have? His work. Of, of Congressman Elijah Cummings is going to hang in the Capitol. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people may, I'm like, well, who's Jarrell Gibbs? Yeah, he's one of those, I don't want to say unsung, but uh, artists who are 
constantly doing the work um, here in Maryland and the city of Baltimore. Of course, Amy Sherrill blew up. Yes. But Amy Sherrill was doing, you know, work. there are a lot of people in Maryland and Baltimore who have Amy Sherrill's because she was a waitress at Gertrude's restaurant in the BMA. Mm-hmm. And she was selling or giving away her work. Stephen Towns, who does uh, quilts. Uh, Tawny Chapman, C-H-A-T-M-O-N. Mm-hmm. Beautiful work. Gallery Mertice in Baltimore is taking Tawny, has an exhibition of Tawny's work in Venice during the Venice Biennale. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Tawny's work, yeah, I, I would certainly, Arvie Smith has been around for a long time. Shanique Smith, mm-hmm. who um, went to Micah, a lot of these artists went to Micah, uh, Jermaine Bell, of course, um, Zoe Charlton, who is a tenured professor at American University. So I don't know all the names, but maybe even some of the folks who are looking in are artists who are doing the work because of the passion and the commitment that they have, not necessarily thinking that they're going to um, be the one whose work is commissioned by an ex-president and the first lady. (laughs) Um, but um, you know I guess the other thing to say is do as much research as you can read a lot go to galleries see what's out there because nobody's going to tell you you got to do the hard work yourself yeah I like that. I actually encourage parents um, when you are building your art collection. Again, I am in no way someone who has an extensive collection. I have a you know a few pieces, but we made sure my husband and I that we took my son's drawings and we took them and had them professionally framed. So you come yeah. to our house next to the cat lid, you have Kofi's piece when he was seven. It's, I tell people put your children's work on the wall as well. That's right. That's an affirming. Um, activity that you can do. And, you know, it's easy to start collecting. Um, Instead of buying a poster, I mean, I love posters. I still have a poster from an exhibition at the Studio Museum of Harlem in 1968. Not to talk about age or anything, but (laughs) the Baltimore Sun's policy tells you that, you know, how old you are. (laughs) uh, I still have a a poster from 1960. That's all I could afford. But once you can afford something a little bit more, you can get an original artwork, a a print, Mm -hmm. a work on paper, you know, for $500 maybe or less, work with the artist, get to know the artist, but get an original work of art um, and a print. I'm not talking about a poster or something that's um, photographically reproduced, you know, like a picture, you know, like by a photomechanical process, but a print that is an original work of art in itself, a print. Now there it's, There may be 25 of them, but they're each original. They're not unique, but they're each original. So start with prints. And, you know, when you make the big money, you can buy these large uh, sculptures and put them in your home. Let me ask you a follow-up with that, because you mentioned Amy Sherald, who we all know, her amazing piece of Michelle Obama that ended up being a little girl writing a book about seeing the amazing piece of Michelle, which is amazing. But but a story came out uh, a couple months ago 
which makes me think, what is our responsibility to the artists? There is someone from the Academy oh. who worked with Amy Sherald and said, you know, I want to buy one of your pieces. I can't afford it. And Amy Sherald at the time said, well, I'll put you on a payment plan, give you a reduced price. And so say $1,000 later, she has this amazing piece. Well, now Amy Sherald is Amy Sherald. And the academician turned around and sold the piece maybe for a million dollars. So the question is, and the, a question we really wrestled with in the academy as Black women, both of them, of course, are Black women, what is your responsibility to the artist? Do you then turn around and say, you worked with me and gave me this piece for a little bit of money. Now you become this person. Should I then go back and do some restorative work? Is that even necessary in your opinion? Yeah, I think, you know, as a society, we need to um, find a way to uh compensate artists mm -hmm. fairly because like Amy Sherald who you know and I know some of these folks who have a, a beautiful work maybe was given to them and then they'll sell it for you know like you said you know eight hundred thousand dollars Amy Sherald doesn't get any of that money um, and this is a this is a current uh, controversy within the art world um, like um, um, not Kehinde Wiley, but uh, Carrie Carrie James Marshall, who um, is an African American art. At one time, his work set a, a record for art sold at auction. You know, I forget the number, but it was in the millions. Carrie James Marshall didn't get any of that work. He didn't get any of that money. And so, what is what is the obligation? And we have not come to grips with that. Um, I think that the artists do deserve some compensation. Um, I don't know how it's going to be done, but I do think that they deserve some compensation because uh, the value of the art has increased and they they are not receiving any of the love. They're receiving the love, but they're not receiving the ducats. <laughs> so <laughs> I wish there were an easy answer, but the art market is controlled by um, probably New York and some wealthy folks and galleries. And uh, African-American art is, has now become uh, a commodity, you know, that's rising in price. Make no mistake that the prices that African-American art have been commanding no way compare to the art of mainstream white artists and long overdue. I mean, Faith Ringgold exhibition just now being discovered. I mean, you know, Betty Saar and this, I don't want to get on my soapbox, but <laughs> I'll just tell you this one little story. Back in the early 1900s, when some of the young black artists at that time, Kara Walker, um, amongst them, Glenn Ligon, um, uh, maybe Lorna Simpson, but mainly Kara Walker, whose work shows kind of derogatory images of African-Americans in her very contemporary work. Older artists, artists of the generation prior to her, were upset that the art world embraced someone like a Kara Walker, um, but had overlooked someone like Betty Saar from the very, you know, very beginning. So there's, there's, there's that tension that still exists about the permission to use stereotypical artists 
um, by African-American art, artists working today and whether, you know, that that um, is something that we want to embrace. But it's part of our history right. as well. Well, you know, sort of speaking of sort of controversy in the art mar market, I'm curious, like, what is your take on the uh, the NFT uh, world, the non-fungible token, the sort of the people buying receipts to digital artwork? Um, that, like, are you seeing a lot of that in Maryland? I'm not seeing a lot of that in Maryland. And honestly, you know, that's kind of over my head. <laughs> I guess I am. Uh, I, I'm just I'm not into that. I'm not I'm, I'm still into the physicality of the artwork, the thing. I want the thing. I still like books. I still collect first edition books. I like I like that. So um I think it's uh, an obligation of the younger folks, our young African-Americans. Uh, and, and I say that with all due respect, um, just because of the generations between us, that they need to look at that and see if that's something that they want to do. I'm not discounting the fact that it's uh, a viable currency. I just I just don't I, I'm just not into it. You know, I'm just not into it. Um, Fair enough. Yeah. Well, you said you're into the thing. I, I was sitting here trying to think, and, and I'm almost embarrassed to say this, uh, Jackie, but it's just us here, so I feel like I can be very honest. Uh, trying to think about the piece that moved me the most, like where yeah. I stopped and I couldn't go forward. Ah. And I remember that that piece for me was when I saw the Sistine Chapel. Oh, I actually yes. had to lay on the floor. And I got in trouble with about this, right? With the guards. Yeah. Because the people everywhere. But I wanted to lay on the floor and see the piece that I've always seen in my textbooks or on television. And I was, I mean, I actually started crying, going, I am here. Mm -hmm. Now, I tried to replicate this for my sons when I got back home. I put them in their tent and I took all their paintings and taped them on the top of the tent. I'm like, lay on the floor like mommy did at the 16th chapel. <laughs> the door, right? um, talk about a piece for you. Ah. When you saw it, you just had to stop. Well, you know, it's funny that you mentioned uh, the 16th chapel because I think I had a similar experience, uh, but as an art historian, you know, I've been teaching art from the beginning of time to contemporary art today. So I know a lot about them, but it has a lot to do. Well, I'll tell you what didn't do it for me was the Mona Lisa. No, I'm sorry. I just I'm didn't do it small. for me. <laughs> too many guards at the Mona Lisa. Yeah, Lord. But, you know, there's something about also space, mm. the a space that will do it for you. So when you're in this sacred space, of the Sistine Chapel, and you imagine what it was like for Leonardo to paint that on his back on all that scaffolding, um, and the smoke that would come up and uh, you know uh, fill the whole chapel. That to me, yes. So I'm very much into the space. Sistine Chapel was one. Uh, a Michelangelo in um, the Pieta, which is in the Vatican. Um, that one, it's the Christ, beautiful white marble, the uh, the, the Madonna uh, holding her dead son in her lap. That's a beautiful piece. And my husband is like, can we just go? Can we just leave? Um, but, you know, these are things that we have studied and, you know, you're physically there. 
um, they become sacred spaces for me. Um, going to um, the Harriet Tubman Center, going to Easton, became a sacred space for me as well. I cried when I was there, you know, walking. It's to know that, you know, our enslaved ancestors walked that same land. So for me, it has a lot to do. But And then, of course, when I did the Elizabeth Catlett exhibition, when I saw this sculpture called Glory, I would love to have that piece as well. Um, and it just always, every time I would talk to visitors, I said, if that piece is ever missing, you'll know where to find it because it's probably going to be in my house. Uh, so, you know, people have different reactions to it, but I, I have several, but Sistine Chapel is right up there with mine as well. And as a matter of fact, I did a Sistine Chapel um, <laughs> construction with my daughter when she was in elementary school. <laughs> I reproduced the paintings. We put them on the chat on there and I'm like, isn't that, isn't that nice? And she's like, uh, I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. We appreciate that. Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, that's, that's pretty much all my questions I have to say. Well, then I want to put one out there um, before we wrap up. I know our time is getting short, but I remember um, when I went to Montserrat in Spain, and that's kind of a hotel and church off the side of a mountain. Right. And I remember going up the mountain. They were like, when we get there, you want to see the Black Madonna. Now, mm. in my mind, Jackie, I'm thinking that it was actually a Black woman Madonna. I was like, this is going to be amazing. I'm going to see this Black woman Madonna. But then, of course, it was the, the color of the wood that was black over yeah. time. Yeah. But the story around that, that there's always when there's a war, what they make sure they do is they get the art, they bury the art, they get the art out of a place to preserve that, to preserve mm -hmm. the story and the history. Can you talk about what's happening now in this time at this moment, the art that's being created? What is it preserving and what is it saying about who we are at this moment? Yeah, I mean, artists, um, I believe that artists from the beginning of, beginning of time have been the chronic, chroniclers of our culture. So when you go and you, if you've seen the cave, made, uh, cave paintings at Lascaux, France, you'll see, you know, folks shooting the arrows of the, the deer. Black artists now are chronicling the times in which we live. We can look back and understand our history. Jacob Lawrence did a whole series. He did so many series of artworks, of paintings that chronicled the times, you know, a Frederick Douglass series, a Harriet Tubman, a World War II series, um, a Genesis series, you know, from... Um, verses of the Bible, and now our artists. So one of the last exhibitions I curated, uh, worked on, were the works that were done by young Black artists in Baltimore after the George Floyd uprising. And the Creative Alliance in Patterson Park organized it. And so all of these works were placed in Patterson Park on view for people to see. We brought those works into the Reginald Lewis Museum and set up an exhibition. Yes, I remember. So what we did, we did much like the curators of the Blacksonian did. We gathered the protest signs, we gathered the artwork, and we had an exhibition of that. Because that, and that should become part of a museum's history. 
you know, it's our contemporary history, but it's it's the here and now. It's happening now. So um, look to the artists to, you know, really tell our stories, whether they're the historical past or the times that we're living in right now. Um, yeah. And, you know, when you look at the work of Gerald Gibbs, who did a portrait of Congressman Cummings, you may think that it doesn't tell a story, but it really does. Because when you look at it, you can tell that the artist did it with such reverence for the congressman, Congress, congressman's holding a gavel. And you could tell the importance of that man. You know, just you could you could tell a story about that. My final question to you, um, Jackie Copeland, uh, in your work as the chair of the Maryland <laughs> Council, your work, you know, formally heading up the Reginald F. Lewis Museum as one of uh, the five living legends that the Baltimore Sun has reflected on for this year uh, for Black History Month, which I'm really excited and very proud of you for. I remember this quote, I don't know who said it, um, but they talked about what it means to, to release the sculpture from the stone, that I didn't actually sculpt the piece, I just freed it from the stone. When you think about your own life and you reflect on your work, actually curating art, seeing art and developing your eye as an artist, what would you like your legacy to be? When people talk about you after you have, as my Nana says, run on home to see how the end is going to be, what do you want them to say about your work? Well, the reporter actually asked me that question. I'm like, really? You want to quote from my tombstone? My goodness. And I said something simple like I wanted to, um, she made a difference. Mm -hmm. Now, the artist that you are talking about was actually Michelangelo because he sculpted in marble and he said, I am releasing the image, the spirit from the stone. Um, what was the question? So I believe, you know, uh, so you know the the history, my brief history here in Maryland, but I've been working. I mean, I've known that I wanted to be in the arts since I was little. You know, I was drawing cartoons and things. And I've done that, whether it was working in schools, um, exposing kids to art. And, you know, one of the best things that can happen is when a former student of yours sees you and says, I had your class and you really made a difference. And I was with my fiance or husband and I knew so much. And thank you. Thank you. Those are the things that, you know, touch at your heart, uh, heart strings. So to know that you've touched someone that you have enabled people to uh, open their eyes and enjoy arts in all their forms, especially African-American art is what's important to me. And I think of a quote that Congressman Cummings said, and every time he came to the Reginald Lewis Museum uh, or the Walters and other places, in fact, I was a judge for his high school art contest every year, he would always say this quote, um, our children are the messengers we send to a future uh, we cannot um, see. Our children are the messengers we send to a future we cannot see. And I think of that as my children and the people that I have mentored. I want them to carry on the passion and the commitment, the love of art and all of its art forms into the future and be enablers of the importance of art to our culture, our society, and the economic engines 
uh, in our cities and state because art does bring tourists here too. Long, long answer, but thank you for asking. Oh, I appreciate that. I, I love that quote by, by Congressman Lewis. I think about that when it comes to my writing, my work, my children, uh, my job. It's like, what is the message I'm sending to the future? And, and we thank you for the work that you've done here, not just in Baltimore, but across the country to make sure that we remain connected to the importance and the significance of African-American artists, that we find ways to enjoy the art. Jackie Copeland, thank you so much. Kamahu Hai, uh, the Baltimore Sun Editor in Education and Diversity, Equity and Inclusion. Thank you again for 25 Marylanders, Black Marylanders to watch with our five living legacies. Thank you again, Kamahu. Thank you, Jackie. Thanks to the Baltimore Sun. And our pleasure. Institute. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. You have been listening to Strands of Our Nation, Conversations with Dr. K. Thank you for listening. And until next time, remember, words are a powerful medium that effectively examine critical moments in American history. So use yours wisely. 